Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 and Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. The 26th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 28, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 9, Translation, Installment, 2016, number 1, accompanies this talk. Okay, we're in the book of Hebrews, plugging along. If you're paying attention, you're realizing that we're not making a lot of progress in terms of the content. It, it is such a finely tuned, subtle, thorough argument that he doesn't introduce a lot of new doctrine. It's just one doctrine that he's arguing for, and we keep coming back to the same thing over and over and over again. But we have to remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews who have, for one reason or another, on one basis or another, they've accepted the claim that this man, Jesus, was the Messiah, but they had never really settled their theological problems with this crucified person being claimed as the Messiah. They've never really put that together. And so Paul is writing this letter to try to solve that problem. And the big deal... The big problem is he got himself killed. So he's making this case for why it is that it was perfectly within the purposes of God that the Messiah would come and be killed. So in terms of doctrine, that's all we're talking about. Jesus died. Okay? So that, this is not exactly revolutionary, but there's all kinds of things that we learn about the subtlety of his thought, how he makes his argument from the prophetic passages, the Old Testament scripture. We'll look at one of those prophetic passages today. Just a brief review then, when we get to the third section of the main part of the book of Hebrews, which is, we're right smack dab in the middle of that now, the third section is where he's making his main argument for why Jesus' death makes sense calling him the Messiah in the light of the fact that he was killed. That makes sense, he's arguing. He starts by, and the whole argument is based on a promise that is made in Psalm 110. Speaking to the Messiah, I've sworn I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's that promise that he keeps harping on over and over and over again and unpacking the implications of that. He starts by talking about why, trying to examine why David picked Melchizedek as a symbol for this Messiah priest. Then he goes into a section where he spells out the implications of Psalm 110 for the Messiah priest. What are the implications? There has to be a new covenant, and there has to be a new priesthood, of course, and then there has to be a new covenant to go along with that new priesthood. He hints that there will be a new offering, a different offering that will go along with that priesthood. 
Then he gets to the third subsection, and we looked at the first part of that last week. Jesus, if he's going to be a proper priest, is going to have to have an offering. And that's where we ended last time with paragraph 38. So I'm going to start reading at paragraph 38 and read 39. We'll talk about 39 for a while, and then we'll start the whole next section. 38, this would be chapter 8, verse 1, if you're in your normal Bible. Now here is the main point in the things being said. We have such a high priest. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is an administrator of the holy rites, even with respect to the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer up gifts and offerings. Therefore, it is necessary for this one to have something to offer as well. Now, I would argue that in this paragraph, for the very first time, Paul is drawing his reader's attention to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah priest of Psalm 110. So when he says, now here's the main point in the things being said, we have such a high priest. He doesn't name him by name there, but it's clear from what has gone on previously and how he describes him in this paragraph, he's talking about Jesus. We have such a high priest in Jesus. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's an administrator of the holy rites, even with respect to the true tabernacle, as opposed to the earthly tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. And then the punchline for this whole paragraph, every high priest is appointed to offer up gifts and offerings. Therefore, it is necessary for this one, Jesus, to have something to offer as well. And that's where he leaves us at that point in the argument. Jesus has to have an offering. Now, in the next paragraph, the point he's going to make is that the ministry, the service, the priestly service that Jesus now, we're focused on Jesus at this point, the priestly service that Jesus offers is a better and superior and more distinguished service than that of the Levitical priests under the Mosaic Covenant. And that's what this paragraph is devoted to. Now, with regard to those who offer up gifts in accord with the covenant, and by that he means the Mosaic covenant, who serve with a copy and shadow of the eternal realities, if he were on the earth, most assuredly, he would not even be such a priest. It is just as Moses was directed when he was about to finish setting up the tabernacle. Now see, he says, that you make everything in accord with the blueprint which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more distinguished ritual service by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Okay, let's spend some time unpacking this one. The main point that he's making is quite simple. If Jesus were to be functioning as a normal Levitical priest under the Mosaic Covenant, he wouldn't be functioning at all. He wouldn't be qualified to be such a priest. But what is the case instead? Jesus has a more distinguished service that has been given to him by as much as he's the mediator of a better covenant enacted on the basis of better promises. So he's a bigger deal than any Levitical priest could ever dream of being. That's the simple point that the paragraph is making. But there are a lot of problematic features of this paragraph, and I want to talk about 
some of them. Some of them are problematic. Some of them are pretty poignant and profound here. He starts by saying, now with regard to those who offer up gifts in accord with the covenant, so the Levitical priests, who serve with a copy and shadow of the eternal realities, if he were on the earth, most assuredly he would not even be a priest. Okay, what I want to talk about a little bit is this comment, who serve with a copy and shadow of the eternal realities. A little later, he's going to say, speaking of the things in the earthly temple, that they are the shadow and not the very image themselves. And I don't, off the top of my head, I can't find it. It's going to come up in the next chapter. So I think we have to understand what Paul is saying here. A shadow is in contradistinction to an exact image. That's the contrast that he's going to make, and he's going to make that explicit in the next chapter. Right now, he just calls them a shadow. But in order to understand what he means by a shadow, we have to understand exactly what's the nature of a shadow here. The nature of a shadow is that a shadow only gives you the most broadest outline of resembling something. Imagine going into a courtroom, and you were an eyewitness to a crime, and you saw the criminal by a shadow that he cast on the wall. And you have identified an actual human being as the criminal based on you saw a shadow on the wall and you think that guy cast that shadow. Hopefully, if you're on that jury, you're not going to accept that as a particularly forceful testimony, very compelling testimony. Because a shadow is not very exact. It's not detailed. It's not specific. It's not clear. Is there a correspondence between the shadow and that which it's a shadow of? Well, of course there is. Yeah, there's a correspondence. But it's not the exact image of the thing that it is a shadow of. As opposed to a photograph or a videotape or a mirror image that actually gives you the same detail, the same coloring, the the same shading, and so on. That's an exact image of something. But a shadow is just a shadow. And I think Paul is using the language of shadow deliberately here. Because the point that he's going to make, and he's going to develop it more in the next chapter, is that the priests are going through the motions of these rituals, offering up animal offerings and sacrifices, smearing blood here and there. They're doing what they're doing to appeal to God for mercy when they're offering up a propitiatory offering. But how does that work? What's happening exactly? What is God like? Does he like the burning meat? Does he like the blood? Is the blood pain for something? Is the blood pleasing him somehow? Why should we think that these rituals that are being enacted by these priests are in any way something that God is responding to positively by granting the mercy that you're appealing for and that you're seeking. Why would we think that? What's the mechanism involved? If it's an exact image, then whatever mechanism we find in the Mosaic Covenant is going to be the mechanism that's involved in that which it is an image of, in the true eternal reality behind it. And I think mostly, for the most part, without even really giving a lot of thought to it, that's how throughout my life as a Christian, I've tended to think 
is supposed to be the relationship between the animal sacrifices and the Mosaic Covenant and the death of Jesus on the cross. If I want to know what's happening with Jesus' death on the cross, if I could understand what's happening with the animal sacrifices, it's like that. That's what's going on. The same mechanism that was operative there is the mechanism that's operating with Jesus. Now, of course, we actually think about it backwards. We understand what our theology tells us is the mechanism that's happening with Jesus, death on the cross, and then we read that into, well, then that must have been the mechanism that was being foreshadowed by the animal sacrifices in the Levitical priesthood. The problem, of course, is if you allow yourself to think about that too deeply, it becomes problematic. Did the animals pay for my sins? That's what we said Jesus is doing. His death is paying the penalty that is due for my sins. Did it used to be that God accepted his payment, the blood and burning carcasses of animals instead? That's the payment he accepted until he got tired of that currency and he needed something fresher and better and more powerful or something. I dare say that's probably how most of us as Christians have tended to think about it not giving a whole lot of thought to it, but what else are you supposed to do? But here we have a statement by Paul and an argument that he's making in these two chapters where it makes it clear that Paul doesn't think you could possibly know how to understand the death of Jesus and what's going on there and what the mechanism and the logic of that death is from what was happening in the Levitical rituals. That They're not that much alike. They're different. And especially when we understand what Paul, how Paul is understanding the work of Jesus, notice the big, huge difference between what Jesus does and what the animals do. No animal intercedes for us. Now, arguably, it's the priest doing the interceding for us, but no priest dies for us. The merging of intercessor and offering is absolutely unique to Jesus. Well... The more you think about it, the more you see considerable dissimilarities between what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant and what's going on in the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. They're not the same thing. And Paul is making explicit here, I shouldn't think you should even think that they're the same thing. This is only a shadow of what God ultimately was going to provide as the basis for mercy and propitiation. So he talks about them being a copy and shadow of the eternal realities. Literally, it's the things upon the heavens or the things in the heavenlies. The way I think Paul typically uses the word heavenlies, the heavens are where things do not decay. They don't become corrupted. They don't dissolve. Rust doesn't rust them down to nothing. The primary idea of something being in the heavens is that it's permanent, it's enduring, and it's incorruptible, it's imperishable. It will never go away. So the point that he's making is there is something that God has had in mind from before the foundation of the world that is the permanent, enduring, unalterable, incorruptible basis upon which God is going to grant mercy. There are those things, and those are the things that we're interested in. Not the shadows of those things on earth, but the reality itself. That's what we're interested in. 
And the, the offerings and rituals in the temple are merely shadows of that ultimate, true, eternal reality, timeless reality. Now, he doesn't tell us what that is here in this paragraph. We know it as the death of Jesus, offering his sins for all of mankind and qualifying himself to be an intercessor and an advocate who will appeal to God for mercy on our behalf. We now understand that that's the ultimate eternal truth about our propitiation. But whatever that is, the Levitical priests were simply creating shadows of that reality for us to look at. Okay, I'm going to skip the parenthesis here for a second. Then in the very last sentence... 8.6 in your normal Bible, but now he has obtained a more distinguished ritual service by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Question is, is being a mediator something unique to Jesus? I've always tended to think so, but I think the point that he's making is the Levitical priests were mediators in the context of the Mosaic covenant. I think of a mediator as an intercessor. I think he's using those basically synonymously. The priests were interceding. The priests were mediating between us and God. They're the ones appealing to God for mercy through their rituals on our behalf. So in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, they did some intercession and mediation for us. But theirs was not the better covenant. Jesus has become a mediator in the context of a better covenant. Now, he's been talking, he's been building up to this for several verses now, that Psalm 110 is anticipating a new and different and better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. Well, who's the intercessor in the context of that new and better and different covenant? Jesus. He's the mediator of that better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises, Well, because of what's preceded, we have an idea of what those better promises are as well. I think what he has in mind is the promise of propitiation that actually is going to get you propitiation. The promise of forgiveness that's actually going to get you forgiveness. The promise of mercy that is actually going to secure mercy for you. That's why they're better promises. In a way, the Mosaic Covenant was promising those same things. Why did you take an animal to the priest as a sin offering? Why did you do that? Well, you had sinned. And you wanted God to not reject you for your sin. You wanted God to look favorably on you even though you had sinned. You're wanting a certain kind of forgiveness. Did it work? Well, kind of, sort of but not because you bought an animal. That wasn't really why it kind of sort of worked. It kind of sort of worked because God was looking forward to the true basis of your forgiveness in his Messiah, who was both the offering and the priest who was going to really secure that mercy for you. And that's why the promise of the new covenant is a better promise because it's, a, it's the real one, it's the ultimate one, it's the eternal one, it's the real deal of which all the other things were but a shadow. They were pointing to it, but they were just a shadowy outline of what really gets us mercy. 
but that which really gets us mercy really gets us mercy, and therefore it's a better promise. Okay, now smack dab in the middle of this paragraph, we have, this has given me fits for years. All of a sudden, after saying, if he were on the earth, most assuredly he would not even be such a priest. It is just as Moses was directed when he was about to finish setting up the tabernacle. Now see, he says, that you make everything in accord with the blueprint was shown to you on the mountain. Now he's quoting Exodus, where God explicitly says to Moses, remember he took him up onto the mountain. What he's talking about is going up into the cloud, into the mists up on Mount Sinai where he's obscured from the people of Israel, often can't see him, and they get freaked out. They think maybe God's eaten them at some point. You know, he's, he's not coming down again. God has killed him for sure because they can't see him up there. Well, what's going on up there? God is giving him instructions, and part of the instructions that God is giving to Moses is literally a plan for how to build the tabernacle that he wants him to build when he comes back down. And Exodus explicitly says, now you make sure, Moses, that when you build that tabernacle, you build that tabernacle exactly to the specifications that I have made in this blueprint that I've given you. Build it exactly like I said to build it, okay? Well, all of a sudden, in the middle of a paragraph that has nothing to do with the tabernacle, has nothing to do with blueprints, it's talking about priests and rituals and rites that they do, not the furniture that they're doing it on. All of a sudden, he says, well, you know, it's like what God said to Moses. He told him to build everything to the specs that he had showed him up on the mountain. My whole life, I get to that point and I go, what? (laughs) What? What is this all about? Where is this coming from? What does it have to do with anything? Well, I think I see. I put it in parentheses. It is definitely an aside on the one hand. On the other hand, Paul is using it to support his contention. If he were on the earth, most assuredly, he would not even be such a priest. Why would he most assuredly not even be such a priest, a Levitical priest under the Mosaic Covenant, if he were on the earth? Well, the answer basically is because we know how persnickety God is when it comes right down to it. We know what a stickler for detail God is. Remember? Remember what he told Moses? He told Moses, don't ad lib. (laughs) I don't want you getting architecturally creative at all, Moses. Make the tabernacle exactly to the detail as I showed you on the mountain. I want you to do that to the precise detail. I want every tent peg to be exactly like I told you to make the tent pegs. Every partition is to be exactly the partition that I specified. Don't you deviate at all. Well, he doesn't spell this out, but basically what he's saying is, do you think the God who warned Moses to not deviate one whit from the blueprint for building the temple is going to be liberal about who you let to be priests in that tabernacle? Of course not. If he told you that they have to come from the tribe of Levi, then he meant they have to come from the tribe of Levi, and there will be no petitioning for exceptions. Any more than God was going to allow Moses to ad-lib as he built the tabernacle and be creative in his design of the tabernacle. No, God wanted it to be exactly as he specified. When it comes to the priesthood, 
you know that God would want it to be exactly as he specified, and he specified that any priest is going to come from the tribe of Levi. He's not going to come from the tribe of Judah. So lest there be any question about it, there's no way that Jesus would even be a priest at all if he were serving the earthly tabernacle. He would be imminently disqualified from being so. I don't think he's saying anything more complicated than that, but understood in that way, it advances his argument. It's exactly to the point of his argument. Jesus couldn't be a Levitical priest, but he is a different kind of priest that's actually a lot more distinguished than the Levitical priesthood. Okay, let's pause there before I go on to a whole new section. I was wondering if you wanted to speak to, I'm sure you're aware of the other way of taking that that kind of centers on the word tupas in the, you know, see that you make it all things according to the pattern, the tupas, which was shown you on the mountain. So the idea being that somehow in what Moses was told is implicit, the idea that the earthly tabernacle is some sort of a image like shadow or copy sort of thing of a greater reality. You, mm-hmm. you probably heard that. I was wondering if you had considered that and why you didn't go that way. Well, I think indirectly that's sort of true. Why would God want you to make the tabernacle exactly the way he told you to make the tabernacle? Probably because the way he told you to make the tabernacle is significant somehow. However, that's not what God is telling Moses. God is not saying, I've shown you the eternal reality. Now I want you to make the earthly tabernacle to fit the eternal reality as if it's at your discretion to figure out how to do that. I think rather, if you go back to Exodus, I think what God is rather telling him is, I've showed you concretely, practically, in blueprint form, exactly how I want you to build the temple. Now do it. Don't deviate from that. So Tupas does not hear in this context, I think, or in Exodus for that matter. Tupas is not the kind of relationship where you have an eternal reality and an image of the eternal reality or even a shadow of the eternal reality. It's this relationship of a blueprint to a building. It's, this is de- a detailed set of instructions about how I want you to build this concrete thing. This is concrete and this is concrete. Make them correspond to each other rather than the other. But I don't have any problem if people want to say, well, but this concrete structure of the tabernacle is intended to somehow be didactic. It's intended to be filled with symbols that symbolize some greater and eternal truths. I think that's more than likely the case. I wouldn't pretend to be able to interpret them, but I do think that that's likely. Yeah, I'm not raising the issue because convinced that it's the other way. I do think, though, maybe I'm not thinking about it right. I think the way of that I was thinking you would take Tupas had that sort of significance. It's not that the reality was shown to him. It's that he's being told, the thing that I am showing you, this is a shadowy copy that I want you to make the okay. tabernacle like. Yeah. So implying that it's a copy of, it's an imprint oh. of some other thing. Yeah, okay. And so that, that he's already saying that when he calls it a tupas, the tupas that I showed you, that is the shadowy reality of ultimate realities that I've shown you. Make it exactly like that. Yeah, it could be. Thanks. Which leads me to my question. Is the reality that all this are shadowy illustrations or expressions like, is it actually the 
the perfection of God, the evil of man, the act of contrition, the res- God's act of salvation, that's what's real in heaven. What we have is a stage where we can act out those ideas so that we can see them publicly, but there really isn't a temple out right. there. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I actually have come in on this in the past, but thank you, I need to remind you. The eternal realities are not just gold temples that are more gold and more permanent temples. It's not like there's this parallel universe that God lives in filled with temples and priests and incense and animal sacrifices and stuff, and this is just an inferior version of that. No, that the realities are abstractions, justification, forgiveness, mercy, salvation, That's the reality that we care about, that we're concerned about. And the temple was just a religious and, well, just a religious way of shadowing those eternal, permanent, enduring, abstract realities. Otherwise, it gets totally spooky. And I don't think there's anything... A lot of people take what Paul's saying here as that spooky. Uh, But there's no reason to do that. That's not what he's talking about. I think you've told us before that in the making of this worship of the one true God, this new way of having faith, that God often or sometimes used not shadows but copies of what the pagans used Mm -hmm. so that people were familiar. Mm -hmm. Is that the case with the temple? Yes, I think so, very much so. Can you tell us how it differed? Well, I may have told this story to some of you before, but on my first trip to Israel, an Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, took us to a dig in downtown Tel Aviv, and we were standing over this dig, and he started pointing out, and he said, you see those pillars right now? Inside that is the Holy of Holies. And then that next set of pillars there, that defines the holy place. And then that perimeter there, that's the outer courtyard. This was a Philistine temple, right? So at that point in my life, I went, whoa, (laughs) what's that all about? Because growing up in the church, you're inclined to think that everything that God asked of Israel was absolutely unique and absolutely for them and only for them and had no relevance to anything else that was going on around them. Well, the more I learned, the more I realized, no, there's a lot of things that are held in common between the polytheistic heathen religions of the ancient Near East and what's happening in Judaism. But as Walke pointed out, he said it's pretty much patterned the same way the temple in Jerusalem is patterned. However, there's this one very, very significant difference. In the Holy of Holies of a Philistine temple, what would you find there? You'd find a graven image of their god, Dog, probably, at that D-A-G, not D-O-G, <laughs> dog, which means fish, you'd find a graven image of their God right there in the holy place to represent that the God was present in the Holy of Holies. That was forbidden of the Jews. They were not to make a graven image of their God, and that's certainly not what you would find in the Holy of Holies. Instead, you find the Ark of the Covenant with the various flotsam and jetsam of their history in the Ark of the Covenant. And he pointed out that That's highly significant. One of the things in the 
Ark of the Covenant were the broken tablets of the covenant. And he made the point, which I think is a good one, do you want to know what God looks like? Find a human being who lives this way, and that, that will be a resemblance of God. Not half lion, half goat kind of monster, but a human being already made in the image of God who is in the likeness of God in their character. That's the best we can do to think of an image of our God. And he thought that that's what was being said by God by constructing the temple that way. And he made the point, and I agree with this, this makes a lot of sense to me. Temples were already constructed that way before God came along and commanded Moses. That was already a practice in the ancient Near East to make your temple or your tabernacle or whatever, your place of worship, to have that kind of structure, pattern to it. So what God was doing was simply taking the architectural religious language that everybody in the ancient world already understood and using that language to say something about himself by tweaking it, by adjusting it, by modifying it to show how distinctive he was relative to all the other gods. But in order to show his distinctiveness, you had to borrow a lot such that you're speaking the language that is familiar to the people. Understand what I mean by language, the architectural language, the meaning of the architecture. And the same is true of offerings and sacrifices. All the ancient world did animal sacrifices, very very similarly to the Hebrews. Notably, however, what did the Greeks do? They dumped all the blood into the ground. The Levitical priests dare not dump the blood into the ground. They save it in a bowl, and there's something specified to do with every part of that blood. Very different. Well, it just invites us to ask the question, okay, why, God? What are you saying? What are you wanting us to learn from the fact that we are to do it this way and not this way? And I don't know if I know exactly what the answer to that is, but coming back to Ron's question, I don't think any of this stuff was without purpose and without some kind of significance and meaning. But it was always delivered in religious forms of piety and architecture that everybody in the ancient world was familiar with already. Did they also have the curtain in these pagan places? Yeah, some partition Mm -hmm. of some kind, exactly. Remember the story of the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant? They took it into their temple. Where did they take it? They took it into the Holy of Holies, and every morning when they came in, the the idol was bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Back on the previous subject of the copy Mm -hmm. um, or the shadow of realities in the heavenlies, Mm -hmm. could we be swimming in the legacy of theologians from early on, as long ago as the Church Fathers, or Augustine at least, living in the context that they did of trying to synthesize Plato with the church. And so there was this idea of there being an earthly representation of something that ideally existed in actuality elsewhere. Well, that's why Logan's question is important. I'm sure there are all kinds of people who are going to talk about Hebrews being influenced by Plato here. The whole idea of the heavenly, the true, the eternal and the earthly copy of it, that this is just Plato. But we have to be really careful. No, it's not, really. 
because that's what I was saying is that where the, the road to error originates. Does it yes. originate yes. with taking yeah. Plato and try to say, oh, this is like the Greeks did, yeah. and in fact God was going down a different road? Yeah, now I can't, I'm partly speculating here, but I'd be willing to bet that people like Origen and Augustine and so on loved Hebrews as a proof that we are to think of it the way Plato would think about it. Yeah, exactly. But I think they are misinterpreting Paul. Because no, the earthly tabernacle is not the corrupt form of the true eternal real tabernacle. There ain't no real eternal tabernacle. There are eternal realities. There are eternal things. There are things in the heavens that they foreshadow. But it's not a tabernacle in the heavens that they foreshadow. And isn't, would that also account for, for lack of a better term, our Sunday school images of heaven as a substantial place, a place of reality yeah, with could. matter that exists in a material way? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the eternal, real place that there can be some yeah. facsimile of on earth? Yeah, again, I couldn't prove that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they're somehow related. Because one kind of naive interpretation of Plato, but a very easy interpretation of Plato to make, is that you're dealing with a parallel universe, a parallel reality. The real one, the eternal one, and one just like it that isn't so eternal and isn't so real. And yeah, is that not pretty similar to the way a lot of people think of heaven? It's kind of just like you're only better and more permanent, and it's up there somewhere just existing in parallel to this one. Yeah. Simple question this is the way my mind works. So Paul says that if Jesus were on earth, he couldn't be a priest. And I think we all here believe in the second advent. So when Jesus comes back, is he going to have to take his priestly robe off and give it to somebody else? Explain your question a little bit more, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I feel like the Sunday school kid in the back of the class, but... Paul says that, well, I'm a pre-millennialist, so I believe that there's going to be a thousand years where Christ is back on earth and he's ruling over Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. But he's not going to be a priest, right? No, I think he will. Oh. I think he will be a priest during that time. The rule was permanently changed? I mean, what's Paul's point Uh then? Well, permanently changed. He came with the assignment to be the priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not a change so much. It was actually built into the very concept of the Messiah himself is that he would play that priestly role. I think that's what Paul is saying that Psalm 110 is is maintaining. I guess what I'm asking is, wouldn't that defeat his argument? Because Christ is going to be a priest on earth? or No, because what he's calling on earth is, what he means by on earth is the mosaic tabernacle eventually becomes a temple, the earthly temple under the mosaic covenant and all that that entails, that's what he means. Jesus is going to function as a priest when he is physically present the same way he's functioning as a priest right now, Okay. I think. So I don't know if he will don any priestly robes, and (laughs) I doubt if he will make any animal sacrifices, because it's not about that. But there are still going to be unbelievers who need an advocate during that thousand-year reign of Christ. Who is going to be their advocate? Jesus. That's the sense in which he maintains his priestly role. Okay. Okay. Now, we enter into a whole new section, 
But this whole new section is going to spin. The first part of it is a long quote from Jeremiah 31. So what I'm going to do is jump to Jeremiah 31 right now and look at that. And then next week, because I think we'll run out of time, next week we'll come back and look at what Paul is doing with it. He quotes Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31 down through 34. Now, the whole chapter is on a similar kind of theme, but I'm going to focus on part he quotes. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Judah after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, what's going on here? This is a prediction that gets repeated over and over and over and over again by various prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah here, Moses in Deuteronomy makes exactly the same prediction. They're predicting a time where God is making a covenant with Israel And the way Moses describes it in Deuteronomy, he says, okay, these are the statutes and judgments and ordinances that God is giving you this day to keep them, that things might go well with you in the land, and it won't vomit you out, and uh, you will be blessed and you will prosper. This is is what's going on here. But you know what you turkeys are going to do? You're not going to keep his statutes and judgments and ordinances and commandments that he's given you this day. You're not going to do it. And because you're not going to do it, the land is going to vomit you out, You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Does he specify Babylon? I don't remember. But you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Ah, but then he says, God is going to bring you back into the land, and he's going to circumcise your heart. And then basically, because he has given you a circumcised heart, you will keep the commandments, and he will bless you in the way that he's promised here. But he's looking way into the future when he writes that. But this is right on the threshold of entering the land for the very first time. And Moses gives them this synopsis of how their whole history is going to go. You're not going to keep the commandment, and God is going to judge you. But even though God is going to judge you, his chesed extends to the thousandth generation. He will not forget his purposes and his promises, he will be faithful to those purposes and promises. And so he's going to bring you back into the land. And when he does that, he's going to give you a heart that is willing and longs to honor God by keeping his covenant. And then things will be different. Well, that promise or that prediction gets repeated over and over and over and over again in the prophets. Well, this is one of them. Now, The question is, it's been confusing because I think I have misread Jeremiah 31 here for years. And it's been very confusing to know what on earth is Paul doing with it in Hebrews, given that I thought I knew what Jeremiah was doing. There's an ambiguity here, and we have to come face to face with the ambiguity in Jeremiah 31. 
Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, this is the covenant. What is the covenant? Is it what he's about to say? That's how I've always taken it in the past. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord, colon, namely, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of these to the greatest of them. That's the covenant. That's how I've always read it. You go to Hebrews 8, that makes no sense. That is to say, it makes no sense why Paul is quoting it and why that's relevant to what he's saying in Hebrews 8. It's not relevant to what he's saying in Hebrews 8. Subsequently, I've come to realize there's an ambiguity here. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, period. What is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days? The new covenant that he just finished telling you is coming, that he's going to make. Okay, so read it with me again with that in mind. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, what is that new covenant? What does it consist of? He doesn't tell us. He's not specifying. He's not filling it out. But there will be a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. When he says not like the covenant, I don't think he's talking about the content of the covenant. He's talking about the circumstances into which the covenant is going to be given. The first covenant was given in circumstances where there's no way in hell the people of Israel were going to keep the covenant. It's not going to be like that, he's saying. Not like that time. Not like that covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this, that new covenant that I told you is coming after those days, that's the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Okay, what's the after those days? After those days where they failed to keep the covenant and God neglected them. Now, I'm reading out of my English Bible. It reads differently in the version that we have quoted in Hebrews, so let me shift to that. In the version that in Hebrews, it is not in accord with the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day of my taking their hand to lead them out from Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I neglected them, says the Lord. So what does he mean by that? He It's almost like forsook them. It's more like I didn't keep them in mind. That is, the covenant was you do these things and I will protect you from your enemies and I will give you prosperity in the land and so on. Well, I didn't do that. That's the neglecting that he's talking about. I didn't bless them in the way that I said that I would if they kept my covenant. I didn't protect them in the way that I said I would. I didn't do all these things that I said I would do because they didn't keep my covenant. That's the neglecting them. Well, the covenant is made at Mount Sinai, and what do we have? We have a number of days, like millennia, (laughs) 
but we have a number of days where God's people are failing to keep God's covenant and God is failing to do what he promised he would do. He's neglecting them. But after those days, there's going to be a covenant in force, the new covenant, that will be in force after those days. So how does he put it? This then is the covenant I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So I'm going to make a new covenant, and that new covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that new covenant is the covenant that's going to be in force after those days, the days of their disobedience and the days of God's neglect of Israel. But their disobedience is going to come to an end. God's neglect is going to come to an end. And what's the covenant that will be enforced at that time? The new covenant that he just said he's going to make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay. Okay, then he goes on. When I give my instructions to their mind, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be God to them, and they will be a people to me, and they each and every one of them, and so on and so forth. He's talking about universal sanctification at that point. Every last person in Israel, from the least of them to the greatest of them, is going to have a heart to want to obey God, honor God, love God, know God, and they will keep his covenant. They will absolutely universally be sanctified, sanctified people in that day. Well, when is that going to happen? After those days. After those days of their disobedience and God's neglect. That's going to occur. So he's not defining the new covenant when he repeats this promise that the prophets keep reminding us there. He's not giving us the content of the covenant. He's describing the promise, the same promise that Moses gave them in Deuteronomy. He will circumcise their hearts. He's reminding them of that promise, but he's connecting that promise of universal sanctification with a day when a new covenant is going to be in effect and is going to be in force. Nothing in Jeremiah 31 defines the new covenant. That's new. I always thought that this new covenant was a unilateral promise from God that God is going to sanctify their hearts, give them a new heart, circumcise their hearts. He's going to give them a heart of flesh in place of their heart of stone. That that's the unilateral promise of God, and that's the new covenant that he's making with them. And you can see why you would come to that conclusion. He spends way more time talking about the promise of their getting a new heart and their universal sanctification than he does the new covenant. The new covenant is just thrown in there, just kind of undefined in passing. But that's not how Paul deals with the passage in Hebrews 8. Paul is not understanding the new covenant to be a unilateral promise of universal sanctification. He, there are two things that are really, let me back up. What we're going to find is, let's say that the new covenant was a unilateral promise on God's part to sanctify every living, breathing Jew in the land sometime in the future, and that that's the new covenant. Well, what law are they going to keep then on that day? Well, duh, (laughs) the Mosaic Covenant. So what are the terms of God's instruction for what they are to do that they're going to be obedient to and they're going to be responsive to? Well, everything that Moses told them to do. So the content of the New Covenant is not one bit different than the content of the Mosaic Covenant. 
They're exactly the same covenant with the added feature that God has made a unilateral promise to put it in their heart to keep that original Mosaic covenant. I mean, that's how I had always read Jeremiah 31. But there's a problem because that means the actual content of God's Torah, his instruction through that covenant, is identical before and after this promise is kept. It's identical. But Paul's argument is God wouldn't have been speaking about a new covenant if the first covenant were not inadequate, right? There's something wrong with the first one that had to be fixed in the second one. And then he ends it. I neglected to give you more of my translation, so this won't be on yours. But in paragraph 41, in 8.13, verse 13, after quoting Jeremiah 31, what is the one conclusion he draws out of quoting Jeremiah 31? When he speaks of a new one, he has deemed the first one obsolete. And what is being deemed obsolete is, in fact, growing old near its abolition. Wait a minute. If the new covenant is the promise that you're now going to have a heart to keep the first one, how is the first one obsolete? How is it growing old and disappearing and becoming irrelevant? That makes no sense. So hopefully it's very clear that whatever else is happening, Paul is not reading Jeremiah 31 the way I have always read it. He's not reading it as a unilateral promise of universal sanctification, a new heart, a circumcised heart, and so on. Let me pause there. We're not done yet, but we're running out of time. So let me pause there, and then we'll go back and look more carefully at how Paul is arguing next week. Thanks, Jack. Let me see if I'm understanding how you see that Jeremiah passage. Okay. Are you seeing it as uh, the focus being not on the content of the covenant, but on the difference in the days? That is, it's kind of like God is saying, whatever I've asked you to do here, the issue is that I didn't help you do it. And whatever I'm going to ask you to do in the new days, the difference is that I am going to help you do it. Exactly, exactly. So my question following that is then, Is Paul reaching back to that and kind of like he did with Psalms, finding a detail in there that's crucial for his argument where it's like it's true that the difference isn't in the content. The fact that the content of the covenant was irrelevant for the argument in Jeremiah, he hits upon this detail that the author said, ah, it is different, and he brings that back into Hebrews. Does that make sense? If I followed you, yes, but let me see if I followed you. Now, I emphasize so much that the New Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant are not different on the assumption that you take the New Covenant in a particular way. But Paul, Paul understands them to be radically different right. from one another. Right. And it's just that, well, yeah, he takes it to be a radically different covenant. Right. And he's reading Jeremiah 31 as proposing a New Covenant, and Paul understands a different covenant some significant alteration in the Mosaic Covenant that makes it brand new. And that's why he uses it, because the argument, notice the argument leading up to this from Psalm 110, if you've got a new priest who couldn't even be a Levitical priest, you're going to have to have a new covenant that he serves under. So we're already anticipating a new covenant from Psalm 110. So finally he gets down to here and says, well, Jeremiah said so explicitly. Jeremiah was explicitly announcing the imposition of a new covenant by God on the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So 
That's part of why Paul is quoting it. And then when he draws out in particular, he says, Jeremiah 31 implies a weakness in the Mosaic Covenant that needs to be fixed. That's why you have to have a new one. And Jeremiah 31 is clearly implying that the Mosaic Covenant is not eternal. It's not permanent, which you can imagine to his readers is huge, to Paul's readers. And for that matter, to Jews today, the idea that the Mosaic Covenant is not eternal is outrageous. But Paul says, well, then how do you explain Jeremiah 31? What's God doing giving a new covenant if the first one was like eternal? What are we talking about then? It clearly implies that it was provisional in its nature. It had a role to play. It had a place. It was important to accomplish what it accomplished, but it wasn't itself the permanent and eternal covenant that defined the relationship of human beings to their creator. And for that matter, it wasn't a permanent, enduring covenant that defined the relationship between the God of Israel and Israel as well. Okay, so just to anticipate next week, and then I'll let you go. So what Paul is doing here is clearly his implicit interpretation of Jeremiah 31 is that the new covenant is an adjustment in the Mosaic Covenant with respect to the basis for mercy and propitiation. What did the Mosaic Covenant do? It defined very clearly in no uncertain terms. When you sin, what are you supposed to do? Well, you take sin offerings and guilt offerings and the various kinds of prescribed offerings that are appropriate. When the issue between you and God is, what do I do with my sin? What do I do with my rebellion? What do I do with my depravity? Well, there's rituals that are given to you. And then there's the big, huge one of the Day of Atonement, where the high priest goes in for the whole nation one day out of every year. All these things are what the Mosaic Covenant said is how you deal with your sinfulness. If you're going to be obedient to the Mosaic Covenant, here's how you respond and deal with your sinfulness. Paul is going to argue, well, that didn't cut it, did it? That was a weakness. That was an inadequacy. That was an insufficiency in the Mosaic Covenant. God needed to fix that. And that's what God was promising when in Jeremiah 31 he says, Behold, days are coming when I will impose a new covenant on the house of Israel and on the house of Judah. And Paul is saying, well, what was that new covenant? Well, the new covenant was he fixed that insufficiency in the Mosaic Covenant. It's not about animal sacrifices. It's not about sin offerings. It's not about guilt offerings. It's not even about the Day of Atonement. It's not about that. In the New Covenant, God, through his Messiah, who is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, is going to offer a one-time offering that is going to be all-sufficient to qualify him to serve as our effective advocate and intercessor and he will secure mercy for us in person. He will personally secure mercy for us from God. That's different. That's a new covenant. Now notice, all of a sudden, it makes sense what Jesus was talking about when you take it that way. This is the new covenant in my blood to shed for many. Why does he call it the new covenant? I think he's specifically talking about Jeremiah 31 there. So that's how Jesus understood That's what Jesus understood the new covenant to be. A whole different set of expectations on God's part about how we're going to deal with our sinfulness, how we're going to secure mercy and forgiveness from him. 
It's not going to be the way it happened under the Mosaic Covenant. It's going to be different now. So you see what Jeremiah 31 is saying. After those days, in the end times, when God finally gets around to keeping his promise with the Jews, where he sanctifies them entirely, how are they going to deal with sin in that day? Ain't going to be animal sacrifices because the new covenant will be in force. It will be the new covenant in Jesus' blood. So that's how Paul is interpreting Jeremiah 31, I would argue. And when you see that Paul's understanding Jeremiah 31 that way, then all of a sudden, oh, it's perfect for his argument in Hebrews. It's exactly what the argument of Hebrews needs. And yes, the animal sacrifice, the system of animal sacrifices was not eternal. It was not everlasting. It was not even the real deal and authentic. It was just a shadow. So it's passing away, and whatever's passing away is even going to one day be obsolete. I will argue next week that I think he means that absolutely. The Mosaic Covenant in the new heavens and the new earth will be completely gone and irrelevant. God let you go. We'll look more next week.